Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Trump, Class, and the 2016 Campaign, and it was recorded on April 19th, 2016. Um, you know, when everybody talks about Anybody wants to talk about Donald Trump, it reminds me of testifying before the uh, Un-American House Committee in 1953, so I better say I am not currently a member of the Trump party, nor have I ever been. (laughs) So I would prefer Ted, Ted Cruz was not my first candidate, but I would prefer that he would get the nomination. That said, we want to just in this 30 minutes decide or analyze, find out why he is where he is and what you all are going to to do about it in November. Uh, This should have been a banner year for the Republicans. If you think about the Obama legacy, there's not one signature achievement that Hillary Clinton is referencing. Nobody in the Democratic Party, neither Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton says, we're going to do another Libya. It was really smart to back the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Look what we did with those red lines in Syria. That Iranian deal is great. Hey, everybody, look at Reset. Uh, th- those euphemisms, or we, didn't ever, we never mentioned Islamic terrorism, that's the way to deal with ISIS. Cuba's a great initiative. Nobody's saying that. And on the domestic front, nobody says, wow, we, we borrowed $10 trillion. We can do better than that next time. <laughs> nobody says that. Nobody says that Obamacare was really great and we're going to expand it. Maybe Bernie Sanders. So the point is, this was a, a year where there was nothing really to run on as far as the Democratic Party. And if you notice the polls, if you were to collate them with the Obama activity, to the degree that he's out in the public and speaks, he's going to say something that's going to offend about 55% of the the public. If he's quiet and he recedes into the shadows and people don't have a problem with the idea of him as long as they don't have to see him or experience him in the concrete. So his polls have gone up to about 49%. So that's not a good thing to run on. So how did we get a populist, Donald Trump, who's managed to repeatedly win about 33% of the minority party? And a populist who's a self-described billionaire, and he has all of the accoutrements of what we would call the decadence of the 21st century, and he's bombastic, he's cruel, he's... How did this happen? Who were the Dr. Frankensteins who birthed this monster? And I would say there were three of them. The first, of course, is Barack Obama. It wasn't just that he did things that maybe you didn't support and the majority of the public didn't, but there was the sheer hypocrisy. There was the idea there was, this was a man who said there are no more red states or no more blue states, I'm a healer. And then at the same time he did that, he said, it's time not to profit. You should know when you've made enough money. Punish our enemies. Trevon looks like the sun, it was deliberately in your face. In fact, I don't have to say it was deliberately faced. He said that. Get in their face. So there was the hypocrisy. There was the constitutional lawyer who bragged about his brief tenure as a part-time lecturer at the University of Chicago, and then he basically broke the law by suspending elements of the uh, Affordable Care Act or rewriting uh, immigration law or not defending particular uh, elements of the Defense of Marriage Act as he saw fit. 
you look at, he said he was going to be the most transparent president in history, and we look at this ABC scandal in IRS, VA, Secret Service, EPA, etc. So there was an anger that this populace liked to vacation at Martha's Vineyard. So the, that really enraged people, not just the agenda, but the sheer hypocrisy that he thought he had immunity from criticism, which of course he did with the media. So he, that's the frustration that, one of the frustrations that birthed Trump. The other, of course, was the Republican Party and their defense. I thought Kimberly Strassel very uh, ably last night uh, put some blame on the Republican Party because of their exalted promises and aims. They did not have the Congress the first two years of the Obama administration, and yet if you think about it, the very fear of them or the fear of re-election, they were able to stop the uh, cap-and-trade legislation, even when they didn't have the House or Senate. They were able to stop immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform. So everybody had expectations if you got one House, you would do better than having none, and they got the House, then they got the Senate, and not much happened. And they said that something would happen. And then people looked at the Republican establishment, John Boehner and Mitch McConnell, etc., and they think, well, if you're not going to stop the agenda and you're going to say that you have no legislative means to do so, which is true, then at least psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, you can frame these issues and get us, you know, stop the pessimism. And they weren't able to do that either. So people were very angry with the so-called establishment. Sort of epitomized that night when Romney uh, ran for re-election and people on Fox News were forecasting he was going to win and Carl Rowe, and it was a complete fabrication. Whether you were Dick Morris or Carl Rowe, people said, if they can't even look at the world the way it is, I don't want any part of these people. And then you can say maybe it was John McCain, uh, when he ran for office, I talked to a colleague, he said he's going to be a shoe-in because Reverend Wright is going to be on all these ads, goddamn America, excuse my language, and then there's going to be a trailer from Obama's direct quote to the Chicago Sun, I'd never miss a service. Or when Mitt Romney uh, ran in the debate and Candy Crawley hijacked the debate, somebody thought he's going to grab that mic and say, no, not in my name, or I'm paying for something like Reagan did, nothing. So people were angry at the establishment. The third was that the candidates that we were told were going to be so brilliant, we're going to have the governors, can-do people. These are the type of people we want. But when you looked at them, and I thought this too, I mean, Scott Walker was very unimpressive in the debates and his campaign. Uh, Chris Christie was obnoxious. He was bu a bully. Rick Perry seemed bewildered, as he always did. Bobby Jindal can cram more information in a minute that is so displeasurable to listen to, it's almost impossible. John Kasich is a skull. He reminds me of an Old Testament prophet. If it's, if either he tells you that his dad was a mailman or that it, you, you're some way failing his ideal of a Republican liberal. So there was not a good, and then I like Marco Rubio, but he sort of froze. And I'm getting to Donald Trump because whatever you think about him, he had a brilliant way of trivializing and reducing people to character. Marco Rubio, little Marco, cruel, but there was something to that. Lying Ted Cruz, Joe, Jeb Bush was low energy. That's hard to reduce a person in such a cruel but effective manner, and he did that. So the third cause of Trump was that the candidates for all of our expectations were not as strong as we thought they were. So who, who was his base of these 30 percent of the Republican Party. Keep that, that's about 12% of the American population. And we're told that they're the old Reagan Democrats 
are the uh, disenfranchised white males or people angry about race and class. There's something to that. That's the core of his support because I think a lot of people here at Hoover, if we were to ask our pollsters and residents, they would say that if you correlate the unemployment rate and lack of education beyond the high school level, you will see uh, certain pockets that go for Trump at about 70%. I know that in Fresno County, where I, I live and come up here for, uh, to commute, there's a big support among the white working class. So I've been talking to people for the last month, and I would summarize the support for Trump on a few things. They're very angry people. So if you say, well, they have to have free trade, you have to have free trade. Uh, one of them would say to me, hey, Victor, when's the last time somebody came up to your office in the tower and said, you know what, we can get a cheaper columnist for $40,000 a year from the Punjab, so you're fired? I said, never happened. And if I were to say to them, immigration is an act of love. Illegal immigration is an act of love. That's what Jeb Bush said. Somebody would say to me, hey, Victor, when's the last time you got hit by somebody who had no, no license, no registration, and no insurance? 50% of all traffic accidents in Los Angeles are hit and run. So people in the real world experience that. So if I were to say to them, why you guys are smoking? I said this to a guy working the other day on a pump. Why are you smoking? It's not good for you. And he said, hey, do I shoot my face full of toxic botulism and mutilate myself? So don't give me a lecture. So they have, and if I were to say to them, why do you buy a jet ski when you don't have the money? They'd say, why do you spend a quarter million dollars a senior kid to Amherst where he'll come out more ignorant and arrogant than when he went in? <laughs> so there is a class element to this, and they're angry at people at you, like me and you. And they have, I think, the people that we make fun of on Duck Dynasty and Ice Truckers and Axemen, they're almost like figures in an arena. We turn them on and laugh how fat they are, or how they spend their money, or they smoke, but they have a legitimate gripe against the establishment. And we, what we do is, is crazy. Uh, they don't really say it's crazy, but we say what they do is crazy. We say it's crazy all the time. So that is the impetus that really fueled Donald Trump, this angry, and it's not a great number of people, but in a primary uh, in which you have candidates that many of them were narcissists and they wanted to, like John Casey's last to the very end, if you can trisect the vote, that will get Donald Trump 35% of the vote. Now, so far I haven't said that Donald Trump did anything, but he did a lot of things that were very brilliant. Kind of reminds me, when I was a professor at Cal State, we had a law, all of these barons on the west side farmers that would give money to the ag department, and all of the English professors, the history professors, when they saw them on, get an award, they said, ah, he's an idiot. Anybody can grow almonds. Oh, wow, he sells caterpillars? What an idiot. That's what the PhDs did. And I always say to them, why don't you try it? Because believe me, most of the people that I taught with could not run a 7-Eleven. That takes a lot of skill and intelligence. It really does, much less running 10,000 acres of almond. So when we make fun of Trump, we don't say to ourselves, let's just take candidate X, and we'll make some rules about him. He can have no political experience. He can't spend any money, he can't have any handlers, he can't have any focus groups, he can't have any ads, and let's see how far he goes against people in the establishment. We would say it would be impossible. So whatever we think about him, he was able to pull this off to where we are now. And so that's very important not to deprecate his skills, because whatever the polls say, he still has those skills. And I think that it's a 60-40% it's a likelihood that he will be the nominee, and I'm not even sure that he won't win. 
but what, what is it about him that was able to translate that working class white anger into a larger 33%? And he has a, I, I, I want to get to your questions, but I'll, I want to point out three people he attacked and three positions that he held that both show his incoherence and his brilliance as a demagogue. Let's look at the people he attacked, the most outrageous that got all of us angry. Start with John McCain, a genuine war hero, a wonderful patriotic American. So what does he say? He says, well, you know, John McCain, I always sympathize with people who don't get captured. And you think, my God, he was tortured, he was disabled. How callous can you go? And I turned on, last July, I turned on the TV, and every talking head said, he is through. You can't say that about American war hero. Well, I thought to myself, no, nah, he's not through. George Patton said that all the time. He said it to his, he assembled the uh, Third Army and said, no man ever died for his country by being killed or captured. I want you to kill the son of a bitches. That's what wins the wars. So I thought, you know, maybe Trump actually read that speech. Or then I thought, <laughs> you know, I like John McCain, but when I wrote a column once about why I would support him for president, I got the most hateful mail. They said, he's a rhino, he's a, he only is conservative about six months before the election. He always whines, he's always talking about his war injuries, he's waving the bloody shirt in Civil War fashion. There was some truth to that. So when people like me or you saw that, we were outraged, a lot of people weren't. They said, well, you know, that's terrible that Trump says that, but I'm finally glad that he got what's coming to him. Let's take another example. Nothing was more creepy and what he said about Megyn Kelly, that blood was coming out everywhere. We know what he meant, it was sexist, derogatory, Neanderthal. I can't even come up with enough epithets. But when you talked about people, a lot of people had also said this, you know, Megyn Kelly wants it both ways. She's not on four o'clock as the astute legal analyst. Each week that she gets on, she's more attuned to her style, her hair, her dress, she winks, she puts her tongue in the corner of her mouth, she flirts, and she wants it both ways. Donald Trump understood that. So when he attacked in a very underhanded way, people said, yeah, if Megyn Kelly can take it, if you give me 10 million bucks and have Donald Trump insult me, I'll be happy for the deal. So there wasn't a lot of sympathy with Megyn Kelly. And now we get to the locus classicus. Jorge Ramos, beloved anchorman of Univision, one of the most popular, we're told, and best paid people in the world. So I, I have a wife who doesn't like Donald Trump, and she was watching a press conference, and she yelled from the living room, you've got to come in here. And I said, why? He goes, Donald Trump just deported Jorge Ramos from a press conference. How could he do that? And she was so happy to see it happen. And then you think about Jorge Ramos, and you think, well, wait a minute. This is a guy who fled Mexico, threatened by the cartel and the government, came to the shores and sought sanctuary, became a dual citizen, became one of the highest anchormen in the world, lives in an exclusive district in Miami, puts his kids in prep school, and then he lectures everybody how illiberal Americans are about immigration. And then you think, well, what's the success? What's the key to his multi-million dollar empire? It's a perpetual population of people who don't speak English. 11, 12, 15 million people who come in an undocumented fashion, I, I I'm not supposed to say illegally, and then they watch Univision. If you were to close the borders, there wouldn't be a Univision audience. They would be like Italian Americans in the early 1910s or 1920s. 
or the Irish, or the one-time influx, assimilation, integration, intermarriage would, would make them Americans. Jorge Ramos doesn't want that. And he's supposed to be a disinterested journalist on the question of immigration. It's like saying that he's disinterested in the presidential race when his own daughter works for Hillary Clinton as a political operative. So Trump understood that. So when he cruelly told him to shut up, go back to Univision, get out of here, Everybody thought, oh my gosh, we're a multiracial, multicultural society. This is terrible. He just lost the Hispanic vote. No, people said, you know what? I never liked that SOB, Jorge Ramos. <laughs> so that is what he was, he, he had, and every great demagogue, whether it's Huey Long or Cleon the Athenian or Ross Perot had a, a, an astute uh, read on what people really think. And I'll give you one last example of persons, even though it's four, I could go on, but he understood something about the Clintons and sexual harassment. In other words, that the climate in the 1990s that allowed Bill Clinton to sexually harass, and I say harass, not consensual, as probably happened with Monica, but what might likely have happened with Juanita Broderick or Kathleen Willey or Jennifer Flowers. That type of activity now on the left is taboo. I mean that the mere accusation of it will suspend your right of due process on a campus. So under this new climate that Hillary endorses when she said, I believe women should be believed, no matter what, no due process, Bill is an anachronism. So when they suggested that he was sexist, Donald Trump, all he had to do was, I don't think you want to talk about Bill Clinton and all of his harassment and his rape, and that shut the whole thing down. There was no issue. So he's got to, you have to give him credit. In a, in a negative, nefarious way. He understands our weaknesses, and he knows how to point them out. On issues, he's uh, typically astute in identifying what makes us angry, and yet, because of his lack of seriousness, he doesn't have a, a prep team, he doesn't have uh, issue books, he doesn't have people briefing him. I talked to a reporter not long ago, he said, you know, I wanted to go talk to him before a debate, and I thought I'd have to go through 10 people and the handlers, and I just walked up at the stage, and he was sitting on a chair. He said, come on over. And then I asked him if he's prepping. Nah, I never prep. So that's, I mean, that's pretty unusual, but it also explains why he has no solutions for the issues that he raises. And I'll just give three. The first, of course, is immigration. He said, that we're going to build a wall, and we're going to make Mexico pay for it. And that got people excited. And he said, we're not getting all the best he didn't say we're getting all bad. He said we're not getting very much of the best. And what he meant was, of the 11 million people, it was an exaggeration, but there is a problem. When you bring in people without any examination of the law, it's no wonder that one million people who are undocumented have gone through the criminal justice system. One million. Or that you have 30,000 people in the California Penal Institution that are here illegally. And when Kate Steinle was killed brutally by somebody who had been deported five times and had been arrested for a felony seven times, Trump's timing was perfect, if I could use that of such a macabre incident. And yet, he, 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 he grasped that issue, but then what was his solution? Build him a wall and make Mexico pay for it? Mexico's not going to pay for it. No way in the world. Could you think of a sophisticated answer? Yes! Would he, would he come up with it? No. Sophisticated answer would be saying $26 billion a year go to Mexico in remittances another 45 go to Central America. You don't have to confiscate the money, as he suggested, as a fallback position. He said he was going to make them pay through trade. All you would have to do is say, if you want to go to Western Union, in my hometown, it's one of the most crowded places in the entire town, and if you want to send back 
two or three hundred dollars a week to Mexico. And if you can't show a U.S. passport, then we're simply going to charge you 10% surtax. And given the 80, 60, whatever the term, the actual figure, which is under dispute, is, 10% of that might actually pay for the wall. But that would really take some thinking on a part and preparation. of, no. And that's why he's so frustrating, because he, he understands how to rile a, per, uh, a crowd up without offering any concrete substantive corrective. Same thing with NATO. Everybody knows that there's problems with NATO. After the Cold War, it should have never expanded to 28 members. Do you think people in downtown Amsterdam or Milan really were going to join up and fight and die for Estonia when Putin goes in there? I doubt it. I really do. Do you really think that given the Islamic government in Turkey and its hostility to Israel and the Kurds and the fact that Article 4, which demands consultation of all NATO members, was never evoked one time during the Cold War, but Turkey has evoked it four of the five times it's happened? Do you think you really want to die for Ergoyan? I don't. I don't think anybody does. So if you're going to have a membership, you have to at least say we want democratic, transparent societies. And you could also say, can't we spend 2% GDP as we agreed on? Everybody except three countries has broken that pact. And if they're not going to do it, are they freeloading, et cetera? So there were legitimate criticisms about NATO that you could use to reform it because it's absolutely essential. We in the West will either hang separately or hang together. We have the common enemies. We have common bonds. So we would think that after getting all of us riled up and turning our attention to the problems in NATO, Trump could have said, let's just cease membership now. Let's just try to get people to pay 2% GDP. Let's just try to make sure that if you're going to Islamicize your government, you're going to be warned, then you have to get out. Let's just say that, you know what, going, using NATO troops outside of the European landmass worked pretty well in Serbia, not so well in Afghanistan, complete disaster in Libya. So let's watch when we do that that we don't go beyond our charter. And that would have been a systematic, coherent agenda. But he didn't do any of that because he had no idea. But he had a gut instinct that people were upset about NATO, mostly because as a businessman, he saw no cost-benefit uh, analysis, and he didn't want to investigate further to see if there were one. That's another thing. Think the third most controversial thing that whipped up the base and got a lot of attention. And he does this about every three, three or four seems to me three or four hours. When we're not talking about Trump, he's going to find a way to get our attention. And we think they're gaffes. We think they're stupid. They're not. They're a master showman. He said, given what's happening in Europe and given our own southern borders, let's just suspend all immigration of Muslims. I think he once said that. And the second time he said, all from the Middle East. Everybody's, oh, he's chauvinist. They got everybody talking. But he could have said, and I think it would have been quite classically liberal, is given the chaos and the mass murdering going on of a quarter million people in Syria, given the fact that one million people went into Germany and about imploded the Merkel government, given the fact that some of the people who have been engaging in terrorist activities, whether in San Bernardino or in Brussels, have recently arrived to the West, I think it would be wise for a committee to say, let's examine each country, Libya, Syria, Iraq, and if we find that they are a harbor of terrorism, let's suspend all immigration from there, without even mentioning the word Muslim. 
that would have been something that would have caught over, caught on, I think it would have been a sober and judicious solution. But Trump doesn't have a sober and judicious truth. So that's the dilemma to conclude. That's a dilemma that we're all faced with. Now, I thought Kimberly Strassel gave a brilliant, I, I really liked that talk last night. I was just disappointed in one thing, that it was the questions that no one, none of us asked her, well, what are you going to do in November? You've talked about this. What if Ted Cruz doesn't get the nomination and you have a decision to make? And you all have to ask yourself that. And it's not going to be as easy as you think because if Donald Trump were to win the nomination and if we have to go through June, July, August and then to the general election, September, I don't think that he will quite be the Donald Trump you see now. He will have an agenda. There will be pe People say they will never support Donald Trump. They will never work with him. Don't be so sure they won't. Because his agenda and Hillary Clinton's agenda, if she's not indicted, or Bernie Sanders, if she were indicted, if you were to compare them on seven or eight issues, the debt, uh, national defense, illegal immigration, Supreme Court, social issues, the Trump agenda would be more conservative. And then the second problem would be is if you do not vote for, you can say, well, my state didn't matter anyway. California, I'm, not gonna, I'm in a blue state, doesn't matter. Or I'm not going to vote. Or I'm going to vote for a third party. Whatever it is, if you don't vote for the nominee, you're essentially voting for Hillary Clinton, I think, whether you like it or not. So what do you do? It's a very difficult decision. I, I'll finish with this. Somebody said to me, well, you can't vote for Trump. And I said, yeah, you probably can't. Because you look what happened when you voted for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was like Trump. He had no ideology. He said he was conservative. He had a faint-hearted little effort. And then he turned out to be one of the worst governors we've ever had. True. But I said, would you have preferred that we voted for Cruz Bustamante? No. I said, well, that was a choice. Tom McClinock wasn't going to win. I said, if you had the Democratic supermajorities in the state senate and assembly, can you imagine a governor Bustamante, what California would look like? We wouldn't have a 13% tax rate right now, we'd have a 50% tax rate. There would be no check on it. So for all of Schwarzenegger's buffoonery, bombast, caricatures, incompetence, political duplicity, was he better than Bustamante? I think he was, even in retrospect. And this year, the choices are not between good and bad, but bad and worse, and I, when that choice comes, I tend to take bad rather than worse. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.